Good evening. This is Quintus Curtius, and this is the second lecture in an anticipated series of nine or ten lectures on my published translation of Cicero's Stoic Paradoxes, which you can find available on Amazon in both electronic Kindle version and also in paperback. Our first lecture, which I did yesterday, focused on the life of Cicero. And in this lecture tonight, we're going to discuss some of the fundamentals of Cicero's thought. What were his ideas? What did he believe in? What motivations and doctrines shaped his outlook on life? This lecture will be primarily discussing the materials found in Chapter 2 of my book, and if you don't have the book with you, you can listen to what I'm going to be saying here. And if you do have it, you can open it if you wish and follow along with the discussion. So what was Cicero's thought? What motivations and ideas made him what he was intellectually? Well, as we said in the first lecture, he did receive a very comprehensive and detailed education in the Greek philosophical classics. But most of his literary activity in philosophy took place within a relatively narrow span of time. For most of his life, he was an accomplished uh, orator, an attorney, an advocate before the Roman bar, as well as a politician, and he had gone through the entire cursus honorum, the path of honors, the course of honors, which was the standard career path for anyone aspiring to be a politician under the old Republican system. But there came a time, as we discussed in the first lecture, that he was politically sidelined in the duel between Caesar and Pompey. Cicero was not a very adroit politician. He liked to think of himself as being one, but when push came to shove, he was sidelined by political figures who were far more ruthless and determined than he was. Cicero primarily was a man of ideas, not really a man of action. And in some ways this was a strength, but in other ways this functioned as a weakness. So he had a lot of free time once the civil war between Caesar and Pompey really got going. He was also marginalized as a result of a bitter feud with a populist politician named Publius Claudius Pulcher, who has been primarily forgotten now, but he was a somewhat irritating populist politician who was involved in various scandals, and Cicero, for some reason, could never resist any opportunity to taunt this man, and as a result, got into some, um, some political disputes, which he regretted later on. In any case, he ended up having a lot of time and he was able to focus and use his time to write the type of philosophy that he thought would um, solidify his reputation as an educator and as a, um, a transporter or a transformer of Greek philosophy to the Roman scene. But he was 
he was not just a translator. He was not just a paraphraser. In many ways, he was an original thinker. He was able to create an entirely new vocabulary in the Latin language. And this really was his legacy. This was no inconsiderable feat. I think this is something that we really need to emphasize and we really need to to uh, to reemphasize uh, constantly is Cicero was starting from a position of almost a barren landscape. There were some uh, philosophers before him. There were some who uh, had, had distinguished themselves, but he really was the one who raised philosophical discussion in Latin to a very high art form. And during this two-year period of time, which was 44 to, I'm sorry, 46 to 44 BC, he churned out practically a library of philosophy. Um, I, if I just run down the list, it's impressive. We see on laws, academics, on the nature of the gods, on divination, on fate, on virtues, on duties, on friendship, on old age, on the republic, stoic paradoxes, on glory, a treatise which is lost, on invention, another treatise called the Hortensius, which is also lost, which was a very influential work for St. Augustine, and also the Tusculan Disputations, which is a fantastic series of dialogues in several books. And at the same time, around the same period between the years 45 and 44, Cicero also wrote five treatises on rhetoric and oratory. So it was a very impressive output, and it's, it's incredible when you think about it, the speed with which he turned out these treatises, but yet the very polished form that they were still able to retain. And this is, I think, the mark of a true genius, someone who can produce a product on short notice that is practically as good as a finished product for a lesser writer. But what was his personal philosophy? What did Cicero subscribe to? What did he believe in? Was he a Stoic? Was he an Epicurean? Was he a Platonist? Was he a Peripatetic? Or was he a mixture of these? Well, that's a good question. And I think we can go a long way towards answering this when we appreciate the fact that Cicero primarily was an arguer. He was an attorney. He was a lawyer. He was accustomed to weighing propositions, to testing their veracity, and to giving each side its due. He was tempered, as I said in the book, in the oven of skepticism. He was tempered in the oven of skepticism. But he was a man, and as his life wore on and as he became more exhausted and more worn out with the tribulations of political life, and, and uh, Roman political life was a blood sport, it was not a sport for the faint of heart, he began to appreciate Stoicism more and more. He suffered some personal reverses. He had a divorce from his wife, uh, Terentia. His daughter, Julia, died, and that nearly drove him insane with grief. And primarily, the collapse of the Republic, which he truly did love, uh, all of these things sent him into a spiral of depression, which philosophic study helped him pull himself out of. Now, we can certainly say the things that he was not. He was certainly not an Epicurean. Epicureanism repelled him, as it did, I think, many of the Roman elites. Um, 
Epicureanism never for some reason took hold in Rome. Even the, the most famous Epicurean, uh, Lucretius, who's De Rerum Natura, uh, which is uh, considered one of the greatest Epicurean poems. It, it, it's Roman history is strangely silent on this poem. It's not discussed. It's not, um, it, it was not, um, it was not something that was really discussed or used by a great number of the contemporaries. Or, or if it was, it certainly, uh, the other accounts discussing it have not come down to us. Perhaps because Epicureanism seemed to go against the tenor of the Roman temperament. The Romans were a, a disciplined, a stern, a hardy people, and Epicureanism um, seemed to exalt the virtues of, of physical pleasure. Certainly Cicero considered that to be the case. He was repelled by its atheistic atomism, and he found this unsettling. Even if his understanding of Epicureanism was incomplete or superficial, which for many Romans it was, if we really, as a matter of fact, if we really examine the life of Epicurus, we can see he was far from being an Epicurean. He was not. He was actually an ascetic in many ways. He he lived a very abstemious life, almost a monkish existence. But for some reason, Epicureanism has become identified with voluptuary pleasures rightly or wrongly. But he did like Stoicism. He first found it rather harsh and pedantic, but eventually he warmed to it and he began to appreciate its merits as a training ground for virtue. His other great influences, the other great influences on his thought was Plato, primarily Plato. And we see this in a great number of his treatises, especially Cicero's De Republica, which of course borrows its title from Plato's treatise. And this was primarily where he drew his ideas on government and on the soul. Now in his youth, Cicero had attended the lectures in Rome of the exiled Platonist Philo of Larissa. And he had been the rector of the Platonic Academy in Athens. And a large number of Greek philosophers had also come to live in exile in Rome at that period to escape the turbulence of the Mithridatic War in the Near East. And we also know that Cicero later supplemented his Platonic inclinations with instructions from, with instruction from the Stoics uh, Posidonius and Diodotus, the Epicurean Zeno of Citium, and the Peripatetic Kratippus. So he was in a position to write in an informed way on all of these schools of philosophy. He was truly someone who had received a well-rounded philosophic education. But he considered himself a skeptic of the, quote, new academy. Now, what, what do we mean by the new academy? What is that? Well, the academy that Plato had originally founded in Athens underwent significant changes in the centuries following his death. There was a rector of the academy named a rector of the academy named uh, Arcesilaus, and he had been the rector in the third century BC, in the middle of the third century BC, and he changed the character of the institution somewhat. And he 
advocated skepticism in that he distrusted human senses as the final determinant of truth or falsity. And Arcesilaus firmly believed that doubt was a vital component of the Platonic system of thought. And this is something that Cicero reiterates in his own writings. And I have a quote in on page 29 of the of my book of Stoic Paradoxes where I quote Cicero's adherence to the doctrinal system of the New Academy. And I'll read that for listeners here. Cicero says, and this, this is a quote from his work Academica, book one, chapter four, part 13. He says, they call this school the New Academy, which seems to me to be like the old, if we number Plato a member of the old, in whose books nothing is affirmed and many things remain disputed. Everything is questioned and nothing certain is stated. But let us name the academy you described be named the old, and this one the new. So he was an eclectic in the sense that he synthesized various different schools of philosophic thought, and he was a skeptic in that he was an adherent of the new academy. But he, without doubt, had strong Stoic inclinations. He liked, as I said before, to test propositions, to take what was useful, to, to discard what was not useful or, or what did not suit him. And he never intended to be completely original. Cicero was a practical man. He never claimed any complete originality. He achieved it, but perhaps not in the way that he thought he would. He achieved originality in his method of writing, in his stylistic, um, stylistic choices, in his new coinages of Latin words, and frankly, in the unsurpassed eloquence of his writings. And that's something that really needs to be read to be believed, really needs to be felt to be appreciated. Uh, right now I'm finishing up translating another one of Cicero's works, and this is On Duties, De Officiis, and that's going to be ready for publication in the spring. And I can tell you it's just been an incredible experience. Uh, the, the book is just... Um, packed with wisdom, every paragraph, every sentence, every page, in the most sublime use of the Latin language. And it's just something that I had not expected, something that I had not anticipated. And uh, if I can digress a little bit here, it just makes me frustrated to see that these treasures of the Western canon have not been promoted more or so unknown for the generations that exist now. And that's why I think it's part of my job part of my mission, I think, to really bring these to a new generation of readers and to ensure that these things stay alive in the consciousness of the young. So in any case, getting back to Cicero, he was not just a synthesizer. He was original in his own right, and he took many of these dull Greek treatises, which had been long dormant on the cold shelves, and he was able to turn them into living, sparkling literature, much of it in dialogue format as an aid to comprehension. And really, this is what his legacy is to the world. This really is where his genius as a man of letters lies, not as a politician, which he thought his legacy would be to the world. Nobody really cares anymore about the 
Catalinian conspiracy. Nobody really cares about what offices he held. What they do care about are his literary monuments that he's left behind. And Stoicism really is where he comes into his own. He warmed to it as he got older, and he may not have been a doctrinally pure Stoic writer completely, but he definitely had his own ideas on what the use of the philosophy could be as a tool for educating the young and as a way of consoling the old and the aged in their bereavements and in their tribulations. And when it came time, actually, came time for him to face death, and he bared his neck to his executioners while calmly urging them to strike, he without doubt faced it as a Stoic. And this, perhaps, may be considered the ultimate expression of his doctrinal adherence. He lived as a Stoic, he practiced as a Stoic, and more, most importantly, he died as a Stoic. This concludes my second lecture on Stoic Paradoxes. I hope you'll join me for the third lecture, which will be discussing the fundamentals of Stoic doctrine. This broadcast was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Publications. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.